Would you please uh, open your Bibles to John chapter 3? We've been doing a, an Advent series on uh, the gifts of Christmas, and we started the series by looking at, you know, God as the giver of gifts, and then we uh, looked at the gift of grace and the gift of eternal life. Uh, next Sunday, we're going to be looking at the gift of the Holy Spirit, and today uh, we're focusing on the gift of the Son. Uh, so I know this is a familiar passage to many of us, but I, I hope through the lens of Christmas, uh, through the lens of Advent, maybe, maybe we'll appreciate a, a new facet of, uh, of these familiar verses. If, if on the other hand, if perhaps you're new uh, to the church or new to the Bible, um, th- these are really, really precious verses to, to many of those who follow Jesus. Uh, and I hope this is a great introduction to you for what what does it mean uh, to believe in him? And, and who is he? And what's his role you know, in the church and in Christmas? So if you've got your place in John chapter 3 or it's in your bulletin, I invite you to stand in honor of God's word. I'm going to read verses 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Let me pray for us. Lord, we give you thanks for your word. We pray that you would bless the reading and the hearing and receiving of it, that we would see and know and love Jesus more. Uh, we pray this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> um, I don't know if any of you have watched yet this year or, you know, in, in recent years, you know, the Charlie Brown Christmas special. Uh, it, it came out in 1965, five years before um, I was around. Uh, and it's, it's still kind of timeless. Uh, it's, it's remarkable how well it, um, it, it identified some of the trouble that we experience uh, this time of year. Uh, you know, Charlie Brown's kind of trying to figure out what, what is Christmas all about? Uh, and, and he's gone to all his friends and he's sort of complaining about all the stuff that's going on. And, uh, and Lucy's response to him is, look, Charlie, let's face it. We all know that Christmas is a big commercial racket it's run by a big Eastern syndicate, you know, um, and so just Lucy's cynicism is apparent. Uh, and, and, uh, and we continue, you know, here 50 plus years later, almost 60 years later going, yeah, it seems to be this big commercial racket. And, and, and then what, you know, how do we, how do we focus on the, the real um, meaning and import of Christmas? Um, there continues to be that, that sort of trouble with what is the real meaning of Christmas. And, um, and, and to, I don't know if you're aware of this, but tomorrow, Christmas Day, is the first Christmas where the NFL is broadcasting not just one, but three uh, football games. You can watch nine to 12 hours of football tomorrow if, if that is your meaning of Christmas. God bless you. Um, and, and, and so just everywhere you look, you know, there's, there's reasons to be concerned, like we're missing it. You know, like where, what, is, what is it all about, et cetera. And so, so much so that, you know, I don't know when it was, when they became popular, but 
Uh, but, but people who were concerned, you know, a lot of us, people who were concerned that we're sort of missing something here over commercialism and the Eastern, big Eastern syndicate and all, uh, we started putting bumper stickers you know, on our cars. Uh, Jesus is the reason uh, for the season. And, and, and we started wearing little lapel pins, you know, keep Christ in Christmas. And, and, and I get it, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a valid, valid concern. Um, but as we look at this passage, I, I, I want to just sort of express a, my own uh, concern that, that we sometimes can overcompensate, we can overcorrect, and we kind of make our mission in Christmas to, to kind of have this apologetic to the world that, no, it's about Jesus, and we, 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 we want to sort of argue the point. When maybe the best witness that any of us can have isn't on our lapel pins or our bumper stickers. But it's the joy that we genuinely have in Jesus. Focusing on him and rejoicing in him and, and having our awe and our wonder restoked rather than just sort of kind of getting frustrated and irritable, right? Um, so, so let's look at the son of God's love uh, who, is, who was spoken about here in John chapter 3. Uh, he's the son who saves, and, and, and this is God's gift to us, the, the son. The son is the gift of Christmas, and so I want to talk and start off with the son of God's love. And, and, and we're looking at, you know, Jesus, God so loved the world that he, he gave his only begotten son, his only son, the son of his love. Um, how, much, how much would you say, how much would you imagine does God love the Son? How much does the Father love the Son? Any, anybody want to take a guess at quantifying that? It's a lot, right? Um, it, it is a lot. And, and, no, and it just would defy any effort of ours to, to describe and, and, and to sum, uh, summarize. So, so look, here's, here's the best that I can do, and maybe, maybe, this, um, maybe you can uh, add your, your thoughts to this too. But look, all of the love that that human beings share, uh, that, that husbands and wives have for one another, that parents have for their kids, that kids have for their parents, and friends have for one another. And, you know, a, any relationship that's, that's nurturing and caring and deeply satisfying because of the love that's shared, do you know that all of that is really just um, us experiencing what is downstream and diluted? from its source, which, which is the, the love of God. We love because he first loved us. Any human being experiences love because he or she is an image bearer of God who is love, right? I mean, the, the, the Bible says that repeatedly. Uh, and so any experience that you and I have of love is, is really just, you know, how many degrees removed from the fountainhead, the, the eternal love that God has experienced between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So even before he created us in his image to be the objects of his love, God was experiencing an eternally satisfying and fulfilling, loving relationship in the, the Trinity. 
That, that's why the Trinity is so important. That's why it's not just data. It's not just doctrine that we believe, you know, yeah, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No, th- this, that, this tells us that for an eternity, God has been love and experiencing a reciprocal love between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit that has been beyond joyful, um, beyond satisfying, and, and is really what we look forward to as we think about the hope of being in the presence of that love. So how much does, the, does, does God the Father love his only son? A lot, right? Um, sometimes we, uh, we get a little, a little confused on how we are supposed to express love and experience love. And, you know, sometimes uh, fathers and husbands are viewed as not very good at expressing emotion, right? Like when the, fa- when, when the father's like, well, that's the wife's job. That's, that's the mom's job is to remind the kids that we love them. Or the husband, you know, is, you know, faithful and, you know, diligent and, you know, goes to work, I guess, and brings home the paycheck and, you know, walks the dog, et cetera. And the wife just sort of over the years gets, gets, get, just, just starts to feel, you know, restless and, and concerned and anxious because she approaches her husband and says, how come, how come you never tell me that you love me anymore? And he just says, well, I told you when we got married and I'll let you know if there anything changes, right? I mean, that's just kind of, we're just, we don't have a good role model in general for that sort of male head expressing affection. But that is not a problem in the Trinity. That is not a concern that the Son has for his Father. In fact, God is not a Stoic, and the New Testament makes it clear again and again that the Father deeply loves his Son. Uh, This is the the Son of God's love, and again and again, um, Jesus expresses his confidence in God's love. The Father expresses that love for the Son. Peter, uh, when he's writing uh, his second epistle, he remembers being on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember, it was Peter, James, and John went up with Jesus. Mount of Transfiguration, they have a vision of um, brilliant light, and there's uh, Moses and Elijah with Jesus and a voice. And, and this is how Peter relates it. He says, when Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So there's, there's two things going on. The voice of the Father blessing the Son. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, right? And, uh, and, and so uh, that, that was also what the, the Father spoke over the Son when Jesus was baptized. But we're looking at the Mount of Transfiguration because this is significant because what Peter tells us is that this is when Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father. Honor and glory, right? Time Magazine just named their 2023 person of the year. Who, who, who was it? Nobody knows. Oh, yeah, Taylor Swift. All right, yeah, expecting a wall of sound to come at me. Taylor Swift! You know, so, yeah, 
Time Magazine, Taylor Swift, Person of the Year, glory, fame, honor, right? All over the world uh, for this person. What was the honor and glory that Jesus received from God the Father? Peter tells us that he received glory and honor from God the Father when he was on the mountain. What was it? Was it, was it wealth or fame or power? Was, was it Jesus' photo on the cover of Eternal magazine? See what I did there? Time and eternity? Anyway, it wasn't that. The glory of the sun. I don't want us to miss this. The glory and honor that the son received on the mountain was the father telling him that he loved him. That's the glory. Is there anything more glorious than being the object of God's supreme affection? I think we'd be hard-pressed to come up with a better definition of glory than being the object of God's supreme affection. Um, this was John Piper's argument. Uh, he wrote a book called The Pleasures of God, right? That title ought to give you a clue, like what's the book about? It's about what makes God happy. Did you know our God is a happy God? Um, he, he's, he is. And, and in his book, he starts off with, you know, I mean, this all, every chapter is about a different pleasure of God. And he starts off with the thing that God is most pleased with, the thing that brings God most joy. What do you think chapter one was about? What do you think would have been a great title for chapter one? Yeah, the pleasure of God in his son. Piper says the first great pleasure of God is his pleasure in the son. And, and Piper quotes Jonathan Edwards, right? Um, brilliant preacher and theologian. He says the infinite happiness of the father consists in the enjoyment of his son. So, so we're just laying this foundation that, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, the son of his love. And that glory, of, that glory and honor that was bestowed on Jesus when the father said, this is my beloved son, I love my son, that glory and that honor is actually bestowed on us too. And our glorification will be the confirmation of God's love toward us when we go to be with him, right? So Jesus is continually aware of and he rejoices in his Father's love for him. He hears the voice on multiple occasions. It was his internal narrative, you could say. When Jesus thought to himself about himself and about his relationship with the Father, it was this internal narrative while on earth. And, and he would say things like in John chapter 3, later on in our passage, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Do you hear how Jesus rehearses this reality? The Father loves me. The Father loves me. The Father loves me. And then later on in John's gospel, this is... Um, in the upper room, they've had the Last Supper, and Jesus is praying. It's this, you know, the high priestly prayer of Jesus, and he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, and he's praying for us, he's praying for his disciples, may be with me where I am, 
to see my glory that you have given me. And here's again the theme of the, what is the glory and honor that Jesus has from the Father. To see the glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And then Jesus, you know, he's, this is his internal narrative, right? He's rehearsing again and again throughout his earthly ministry from John chapter 3 to John 17, all throughout, you know, those three years. This is, this is what's on his heart and on his mind. And then he goes on to pray something really pretty remarkable. Later, just a couple of verses later, he says, And I made known to my followers, the disciples, your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So Jesus prays that the same love that the Father has for the Son, that was Jesus' internal narrative that he's rehearsing throughout his earthly ministry, that love might be in us, and that that would become our internal narrative. Can you imagine living out of the same awareness of God's love for you, the same love that motivated Jesus, the same love that compelled Jesus? Is that our internal narrative? This is the son of God's love. And, and, and God so loved the world that he gave that son so that whoever believes in him would not perish. Because God loved the perishing world, right? Receiving, let alone experiencing, that kind of love that God has for the Son that Jesus prayed would be in us, it's all the more remarkable. Because in fact, you and I don't deserve it. We're, we're part of the perishing world, right? We turned our back on the Father in Eden, uh, and we walked away from him into darkness. This is the human narrative. This is our story. And our internal narratives are the evidence, right? We kind of go in one of two directions. We either think to ourselves, well, God doesn't matter to me, and we live independently of him. That's our internal narrative. God doesn't matter, you know? And you can put a whole lot of different philosophies and ideas into that category. So on one hand, you've got people living with their internal narrative, God doesn't matter to me. The other group of people, their internal narrative is God owes me, right? So the one group's living independently of him, and the other group's working really, really hard for him, and God owes them. But neither of those groups have as an internal narrative, God loves me. One group's living, you know, God doesn't matter to me. The other group, God owes me. What about God loves me? What if that was our internal narrative? Jesus explained, um, he, he put it this way in, in the parable of the prodigal sons, plural, right? Like, so on the one hand, you've got people who keep their distance through wild living and wanting nothing to do with the Father, just being independent of that kind of authority and wanting to call their own shots. And others are living independently of the Father through sort of this slavish obedience, thinking you know, that God's this boss who owes them. He's not the kind Father who would bless them. And, uh, and all of us, because of our own wandering you know, into darkness, 
to choose our own corners of that darkness to live in apart from God. And God loves us. And he sent his son into the darkness to rescue those of us, all of us, who are perishing. Okay? Um, this is the judgment. If you look at the passage and continue on in verse 19, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. I Isaiah was prophesying about this very thing. J Jesus, the Son of God's love, coming into the world as the light of the world in order to show God's love for those who are perishing. In Isaiah 9, it says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwell in the land of deep darkness on them has light shone. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, this gift of the son. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. So this, this is the son of God's love. The father loves the son, and he loves the world, the perishing world. And he gave the son of his love to the world so that whoever believes in him would not perish. This is the son who saves, right? Look at verse 17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The son who saves us. Last week, um, we were looking at the gift of eternal life. And we were talking about different conceptions of, of, you know, heaven, right? I mean, when people think of eternal life, they think of heaven. Uh, and for some people, you know, they, they have this idea of some kind of eternal exotic vacation with the endless buffet and the drinks with the umbrellas in them, and it's just perfect and beautiful forever and so on. And others say that heaven's this sort of better place, you know, a place without pain or, or tears or death. And, and certainly there's some truth, you know, in the whole new creation and a place without pain and death. There's, there's truth in that, but there's a, a glaring omission from those singular definitions of eternal life or heaven. And if you're around last week, we talked about what that glaring omission is. There's no Jesus in any of those definitions. I mean, it's, it's going to be wonderful, right, to be reunited with departed saints. And it's going to be wonderful to be in a place where there's not going to be any more weeping or crying or mourning or pain. It's going to be wonderful to be in a new creation. But, but what's going to be fundamentally wonderful about, about heaven and about eternal life is, is Jesus is there. And, and we're going to center our eternal lives around him forever along with all of the saints who have gone before us in the context of that uh, new creation. And it will be supremely beautiful and joyful. But I just want you to know that the reason why heaven is so focused on Jesus is because that's what he has rescued us to obtain, is to be back into his presence. Uh, because when the Bible talks about sin or when it talks about what's wrong with humanity, it describes Sin is fundamentally a separation from God, being out of his presence, right? So, I mean, the, the whole story of the Bible begins in the garden, and it begins with Adam and Eve walking with God, right, in the garden. They're with God. And then hell begins right after the garden, right? When, when began after Eden, when our first parents looked to something besides God in order to satisfy them. And that's when they were expelled from the garden. 
And then heaven could be seen again in the tabernacle. God sets up the tabernacle, and he says, I'm going to be with you, you know, and I'm going to forgive my people, and I'm going to dwell with them. And then heaven gets announced in Jesus, who came to, to tabernacle among us, like literally made Mary's womb his tent, his dwelling place. And then hell was confirmed by Jesus. And he went about warning people, like, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Um, heaven was modeled by Jesus. He embraced the broken. He embraced the repentant. And he invited everyone. To, to follow me, why? So that they could be with him, right? In fellowship with him. And then hell was suffered by Jesus. And that's what the cross teaches us, as he hung there as a, as a, a sin-bearing substitute for us. What he cried from the cross as he bore our sin was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you away from me, Right? And then heaven was guaranteed by Jesus. When he, he rose from the dead, he invites the whole world uh, to know him, to be with him forever. And he told the repentant thief, today you will be with me uh, in paradise. And he tells all of us, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me, Right? I feel a little unease about talking about heaven and hell on Christmas Eve, right? Like it's sort of like an indecency to talk about. You even use the word hell, right? But it's what we sing about. Our Christmas carols are full of the promise of being reunited with God, of, of the, the curse of sin being overcome through Jesus and his sacrifice. Of, of us who were in darkness being brought into God's presence through his son. This is, this is the message of Christmas. God with us, Emmanuel. We don't have to live apart from him. He came to save us. And, and he saves us so that we can believe in him. Um, earlier in John's gospel, chapter 1, John says the true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. There's something about that light invading the darkness that, that teaches us it, 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 it corrects us in a way. It corrects our misunderstanding of how grace comes to us. We think grace comes to us the way that, you know, you and I might, might enter a contest to win a prize. Have you ever won a prize? Have you ever won one of those contests? I, I won a poinsettia from Milmont one year because I, I went to Milmont and you fill out the, your name and you stick it in the box and then lo and behold, I got a phone call. What's this number? It's a week later and it's, oh, it's Milmont. Hey, you won a poinsettia. Like, seriously, I want a poinsettia. I, I want a poinsettia. Cool. I mean, not a whole lot to brag about. I'm milking this, so you can tell. Uh, but some of you have won some cool stuff. 
you, you enter that lottery, you, you, you sign that piece of paper and you stick it in the box, or I don't know, you, you, you buy that scratcher and you scratch the stuff off, and I mean, maybe you've won, maybe you've won something big, I don't know. But that's, that's not really how grace comes to us. Grace comes to us more like it, how it came to, to Brian Mongold. God bless them. I hope they feel better soon. Um, so <laughs> Brian was sharing with us um, that, that he won something at the, um, at, the, at the cheese shop in draft. This was, I don't know, how, a couple of years ago. And he's just, you know, cares like, hey, Brian, um, can you stop by the cheese shop on your way home from work and pick up some couscous? I don't know. <laughs> couscous is not typically on our shop. But, so, but where are you going to get couscous? The cheese shop. Sure enough, that's where you can get couscous. So Brian bugs in, and he gets his couscous, and he goes right to the, to the uh, cash register, buys his one item, his couscous, and then the bell rings, and you know, the, the confetti falls, or the, you know, whatever, the little pop things pop, and congratulations, Brian, you're the hundredth customer today in our customer appreciation week, and Brian's like, what is happening here? And they hand him a spiral ham. And then they put a calendar in his arms, and then they give him some, um, uh, <laughs> like some, some car washing cloths, you know, some chamois, and a knife set, and a pen, you know, uh, and they're just piling on the gifts for being the hundredth customer during hundred, you know, customer appreciation week, and so he walks out with a ham, a calendar, a knife set, some chamois, a pen, and some couscous, all under the glare of all these other people who were sad and kind of bitter that they weren't the hundredth customer that day. He says, I got out of there with my life. <laughs> so, and that's how grace comes to us. We're, we're groping around in the darkness. We can't even conceive of the light. And then Jesus comes. He comes to us and he blesses us and, and he's the result of revelation. God reveals the Son to us. And when we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus, we're not blind anymore. We're not dead anymore. We're we're not deaf anymore. We can see and hear and and rejoice in the Son. And and that's just the soul's natural response to light invading our darkness. When you get a glimpse of that, you can't turn away. You're not able to. You believe and you follow. Is that your experience of the Son? Has He come to you in, in your darkness and shown you His beauty, shown you His grace, something that you and I can't earn? We, we weren't even looking for it. We didn't even put our name in the box. It just comes. And it's better than any million-dollar lottery that, hey, guess what? You know, 
Have you seen his glory? And are you following him? Is he the gift of the Father for you? The gift of the Son. Like when, when, when Kathy and I were in Orlando and I was in seminary, we met a guy named David. Uh, and David was a really unique individual, still is. Um, just a remarkably loving, kind person. Uh, and we met David, and, and, uh, and David talked to us about the newcomers class, the new, new members class at his church, where the, the pastor said to everybody in the, new, in the newcomers class, look, um, you know, find a way to serve the church. You know, like the church serves you, you serve the church, we're an interdependent body, and this is how it works. And he's like, so I don't know what I can do really to serve the church, but I work at Disney. And do you think it would be... Like, could I have a ministry of, of helping, like, pastors and missionaries just have some time off and goof off with their family by getting them into Disney? Is that, is that, was that a valid ministry? What do you think the pastor said? <laughs> no, sorry, that doesn't count. Yeah, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, can, can I be first? And, that's, and that was this guy's ministry. And, and David would meet our family. Like, we would, this was when the kids were little. Um, and, uh, and, and, and we would drive up to the, there's the parking thing, the parking toll booth, and, and he would park his little, his little car on the side, and we would come up behind him, and he would get us to the parking thing, and then we'd go park, and he'd walk up um, and, and get us through the ticket thing, and he'd show his Disney ID, and, and all of the dailies would follow him, and, uh, and then he'd chat with us, and we'd visit for a little bit, and then he'd say, well, hey, enjoy your day, and and he would go back home to, to enjoy his day off. Like, like hear this. He would, it, would, it would take him at least two hours to drive from where he lived all the way out to where he worked on his day off, meet us, you know, go through the hassle and the rigmarole of arranging that and being with us. And I mean, he just, it was sacrificial. It was really kind. It was really loving of him to do that. And, and then he'd get us through the gate and we'd visit. And like I said, you know, the dailies would then go enjoy our day of pro bono Disney, right? And I'm afraid that's a way, that's, that's how a lot of people maybe kind of think about heaven. You know, Jesus, sacrificially, at a great expense, right? I mean, gets us into the kingdom. Just like David would get us into the magic kingdom, sacrificially free for us. Jesus gets us into the kingdom of God, sacrificially free to us. And then we just sort of imagine the kingdom of God. We sort of imagine heaven as a place where we go and we just go have fun. We're with family, we're with people that we love. And we're just, it's fun, it's awesome, it's wonderful, it's joyful. Of course it is. And we imagine it without Jesus sometimes. But what if... What if we could imagine and reimagine heaven, the kingdom of God, the gift of the Son, the way the Bible depicts it, so that our Christmas could be full of the, the honor and the glory that the Father gives to the Son, whom He loves, and Him He is well pleased, and then because we are with Jesus and united to Him by faith, by trusting Him, by following Him, by loving Him, that honor gets bestowed on us, 
the Father's adopted sons and daughters because we're united to the Son. We never lose sight of the Son. And we're together with the Son, recipients of the glory of God, the glory and honor of God who says over us, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. With you, I am well pleased. So as we get ready for Christmas tomorrow, as, even as we get ready tonight to celebrate, I, I just want to see if we can have our, our idea of the kingdom recalibrated. And, and know for sure, what are we looking forward to? What's at the center of heaven? What's at the center of that celebration? And, and in your bulletin, I'm, I'm going to ask for your help. We're going to do a little responsive reading here at the end from Revelation 5. And I just want you to hear and, and, and help me uh, by reading the bold parts. Get a picture of the, the centricity of Jesus, the, the central place that he has as the object of God's affection and of the celebration of all the beings that are there in heaven. Let's stand again in honor of God's word. And again, you all read the bold part. I'll read the rest of it. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures... And the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, and under the earth and in the sea, and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Lord, we worship you. We love you. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the object of the Father's affection, that the glory and honor that is yours in heaven is being the object of the Father's love, being the object of our love, being the object of all of the heaven's affections. And so, Lord, would you recalibrate our hearts? Be the object of our affection. Be the object of our love. Be the gift that we receive this Christmas. And Lord, let the narrative of our lives be that you love us, that you gave your Son for us, that our sins are forgiven because of his love for us, 
that we have your spirit because of your love for us. And Lord, would you help that be our witness to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors, to those we have a hard time getting along with. Lord, we pray that the world would see in your people that we know that we're loved by God. And the proof for that love is in the Son that you gave for us. In his name we pray. Amen.